everybody to another episode of the talking space podcast this is talking space episode 709 for the week of monday september 14th 2015 this is a very special episode and we'll get to why in just a little bit but for now it's special because joining us is gene mccalka welcome gene hey sir welcome everybody to the chromatic aberration edition of talking space i've got some uh, had an eye exam earlier i can hardly see but we're going to get through this as long as you could speak and please the ears of all of our listeners, that's what matters. Welcome as well, Cassie Tamanini, a.k.a. Craftless. Great to be here and excited to do some celebrating later. Yes. Welcome as well, Kat Robinson. It's a pleasure as always. And welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. Tally-ho. Tally-ho indeed. All right, so let's start things off then with a little bit of Soyuz news before we get to our fun stuff a little bit later in this episode. Uh, And this involves the Soyuz TMA-16M, which safely returned in the hills of Kazakhstan just this past week. Now, coming back home was three crew members. That included Commander Gennady Patalka, who came back from a long-duration stay aboard the International Space Station. In fact... He now holds the world record for most days in space at 879 over five different missions. With him was flight engineer Andreas Mogensen, as well as Kazakh cosmonaut Aidan Ambatov, who got to fly thanks to a spaceflight participant who dropped out after paying $51 million originally to fly. The two of them came up just 10 days prior on the Soyuz TMA-18M. That will be left aboard the International Space Station and will be the return vehicle for the long-duration spaceflight participants, including Scott Kelly. So now there is a crew of six aboard the International Space Station, which includes Scott Kelly, as mentioned, as well as Chell Lindgren, Japanese astronaut Kimia Yui, as well as Mikhail Kornienko, Oleg Kononenko, and Sergei Volkov. So they will be aboard the International Space Station now with this crew safely back. Yeah, and Sawyer, just to mark time here, officially, I believe it's on September 15th, which is tomorrow as we record this, either 15th or 16th, uh, Scott Kelly is officially at the halfway point of his uh, one-year marathon on board the International Space Station. I think NASA is also marking that with some special events on the 16th. If so, if once this uh, go, I know this is probably going to be out there before that, you know, way after that time, but it's something we're, we're probably going to go ahead and mention uh, on next week's program. But there, uh, there is some really, really cool stuff going on on uh, NASA television this week. So if anybody's interested, they can roll back and take a look at it. 
and again, this is all to mark Scott Kelly's uh, halfway point with uh, this incredible run he's making on board the International Space Station. Now, another little interesting bit of trivia, not so much about Kelly, but he was involved in it, is this uh, period when there were nine crew members on board the ISS, the most amount of people in space since November of 2013. That's right there, Kat. I believe there for a while there, there were nine people on board the International Space Station. We didn't have that many uh, astronauts on board at all, uh, so I believe, since the last shuttle flight. And as No, no that's not true. Oh. Uh, there was another Soyuz, like, one-week taxi trip in mm-hmm. November of 2013. There were nine people on board the space station then. Before that, it was a space shuttle mission. Yeah, that's that, that. That's what I'm saying. You know, when when a Soyuz docks, it's always like you know, th- three folks coming in and say, "Hey, how you doing?" and and you pull up the chair. When uh, when a shuttle used to dock, it was sort of the, the way it was described. It was sort of like a bunch of party crashers coming in all at once, and uh, uh, so it it actually made for even more of a special uh, special event. But uh, unfortunately, not to be anymore. But uh, with the dawn of uh, CST-100, now I believe called the Starliner, and uh, with the Crew Dragon coming up, uh, we'll have those party crashers coming back uh, with the crew of seven that they're having, that they have planned. So uh, we'll just see what happens along the way. Exactly. But a welcome home to our crew of three, two people who spent 10 days in space, and another person now who is the world record holder. So welcome home to all three of them. Welcome back to planet Earth. All right, so now we're going to get right into a few of our big news stories. That's, of course, a little quick update on what's going on in space. But back down on Earth, you might know of United Launch Alliance. You might know of Aerojet Rocketdyne. You may know of about $2 billion. But I believe all three of those have something in common. Right, Gene? Oh, boy, do they ever. Uh, and to be honest with you, I didn't see this coming at all. This this came right out of the blue. And in fact, somebody on Twitter, when I posted this story initially, thought I was actually posting an erroneous story. And I had to say, no, no, that this was – we went through some fact-checking with three other sources, and, and this is the God's honest truth. Because previously, United Launch Alliance – had signed an agreement with Blue Origin, essentially cementing the partnership they have a little bit deeper and saying that, well, we're going to go ahead and make sure that the, the BE-4 is, is, is ready to go and ready, ready to rock and roll. Instead, right out of the blue, Aerojet Rocketdyne decided to put a $2 billion offer on the table. And I understand this offer has been on the table now since August, and this is according to Reuters, for United Launch Alliance. Now, for the uh, uninitiated, United Launch Alliance is owned by both Boeing and Lockheed Martin. It's a joint effort to uh, market launch services between the two organizations. And uh, the $2 billion, if, if you really think about what Aerojet Rocketdyne is trying to do here, it's kind of masterful. Because what they're they're trying to do is they're essentially trying to mimic the SpaceX model, if you really, really think about it. SpaceX right now is a one-stop shop. They could go ahead and they, they build their own launch vehicles, they build their own engines, and they can go ahead and launch your cargo 
or your satellite or whatever you want to launch into low Earth orbit at a fairly decent low price. So I think that's what Aerojet Rocketdyne is trying to do. They are trying to out SpaceX SpaceX in this maneuver by going ahead and becoming a one-stop shop themselves where they will have the rights to launching, say, the, the Atlas or the Delta, which I believe are scheduled to be phased out. And then you also have the Vulcan, which is sitting out there uh, in development. So I, I don't know what would happen to that, but my guess would be that it would be continued to be pursued. The other point of this, and again, this is a wonderful, wonderful move, and as far as a business move, if you think about it, Aerojet Rocketdyne essentially turns the deal that United Launch Alliance has with Blue Origin for the BE-4 engine, because Aerojet Rocketdyne is also in the business of building rocket engines, and they are competing to be the supplier for the Vulcan booster uh, with their own engine, the, the AR-1. But what they essentially would do in buying United Launch Alliance would just turn the, the deal that ULA currently has with Blue Origin for the BE-4 engine, you could use it to line the bottom of my, my two birds birdcage because pretty much it's, it's over and done with. So, uh, Well, you have to realize, too, that all of this is coming on the heels of the Department of Defense uh, saying earlier this year that it didn't own the design or production rights for the Atlas V. That's correct. So you, I mean, this goes back a long way of what they're doing. You bring up a pretty good point, though. What, what, is, the, what is DOD thinking and saying about all this? And again, there, there are two schools of thought right now. One is, again, the one-stop shop deal where Aerojet would inherit all, all of this, this intellectual property in the deal and continue pursuing launching Atlas V, presumably once the RD-180 supply runs out, they would probably shift over to their own engine, which is the AR-1. They would continue launching Atlas V with that until Vulcan came online. Or at least would they pursue it? Another That's another question altogether. So you'd still have this, this one-stop shop, which they would hope would pit against SpaceX's also one-stop shop model and hopefully keep launch costs down. So in a way, that would benefit the client. And in this case, the client would be, you know, the U.S. Air Force, the uh, National Reconnaissance Office, and, and so on and so forth. The other school of thought, and this is something also another Reuters article indicated, was that the Pentagon is taking a little bit of a tentative look at all this because they are also trying to assure that they have the high ground. They can maintain their access to the high ground, which is Earth orbit. And we've had orbital ATK falter. We've had SpaceX falter. ULA still has a fairly good track record. What would be the impact of trying to meld together Aerojet Rocketdyne and United Launch Alliance after a, a corporate takeover. Now, I don't know if anybody's been through corporate takeovers themselves. I've been through, unfortunately, several of them where people get, you know, they get the ax because of just duplication of, of duties and so on and so forth. But what would that, what would all that disruption do 
to United Launch Alliance as far as their spotless launch record? Could they continue to maintain that? And that's something the U.S. Air Force wants to understand and wants to understand the business case before this thing proceeds. So they're going to be looking at this really, really closely. So there's actually two schools of thought and two ways this could go. And the, the other thing, too, this is totally dependent on what Boeing and Lockheed Martin say. From what I'm hearing, and again, this is coming from Reuters, Lockheed Martin is you know, ready to go, but Boeing is thinking, well, I think ULA might be worth a little bit more than $2 billion. So stay tuned, folks. But fasten, up, fasten your seatbelts, break out the popcorn. This is going to get real interesting before this is all over. Oh, yes, indeed it is. And, of course, we will be keeping an eye on all things going on with this uh, proposal and, of course, with all of the companies. And as soon as we know more, we'll let you know as well. But very interesting topic and... Wow. It may seem a little bizarre to talk about this kind of topic on a radio show, but there have been new pictures released from New Horizons, finally, of Pluto and its moons of its recent flyby. Gene, want to fill us in a little bit on what those pictures show? Sure, Sawyer. Well, the photographs or the pictures and new data are starting to come down now from New Horizons. All of August, essentially, New Horizons was sending back engineering data, basically how what the health of the spacecraft was and so on and so forth, just to make sure things were very, very healthy with the spacecraft itself. But back on September 6th, the science data started coming back down and some new photographs were released and they are just absolutely incredible. They're showing essentially the diversity of uh, of the, the land formations on Pluto itself. They're taking also a look at Charon, but there's one photograph in particular that I had mentioned during uh, uh, the pre-show here, and it is amazing. It is essentially showing some of the younger surface, which is right next to a crater-pocked area, which is really, really the most ancient part of the Pluto surface. And... To, to quote Jeff Moore in the uh, in the piece that I'm looking at from the New Horizons website, he says, quote, the surface of Pluto is every bit as complex as that of Mars, who is Jeff Moore should go ahead and preface this as the leader of New Horizons geology and geophysics group over at, at uh, NASA Ames. And he was saying, quote, the randomly jumbled mountains might be a huge block of hard water ice floating within a vast, denser, softer deposit of frozen nitrogen within the region formerly named Sputnik Planum. And I'm just looking at that, that shot here. And uh, we're going to put this in the show notes. But I saw this and it just made my jaw drop. This is a 220 mile or 350 kilometer view of Pluto from New Horizons. And I'll just read the write-up on this particular photo. Quote, the incredible diversity of the surface reflectivities and geological landforms on the dwarf planet. The image includes a dark, ancient, heavily cratered terrain, bright and smooth, geologically young terrain, assembled masses of mountains, and an enigmatic field of dark aligned ridges that resemble dunes. Just picture that, a dune field on Pluto. This little world here is is just it's full of surprises, and I, I just can't wait to see what else comes down in, in the future on this particular uh, data collection. And keep in mind, too, this is this is the data that was collected during a four-hour pass of the planet. Yes, I said planet. There, I said it. 
which is what a lot of the planetary scientists were also sort of joking around during the flyby saying, yeah, we said it there. And just the diversity alone in some of these shots that I'm seeing is just absolutely breathtaking. I can't wait to see what else, what else is stored on board that spacecraft right now. But uh, we will definitely put a, a link to this in the show notes. And if anybody wants to go ahead and take a look at the daily goings-on uh, with New Horizons, just visit uh, pl.edu, which is the primary website for the New Horizons missions. And again, we'll put that in the show notes. But uh, fascinating your seatbelts on this one, too, folks. This one's going to really, really get interesting. Yes, indeed. J-H-U-A-P-L, by the way, is the John Hopkins University Applied Physics Laboratory. So as much as people think it's a NASA mission, it's also Johns Hopkins coming in there with the science. But these pictures that are coming back are absolutely gorgeous. And uh, it's not just about the pictures, though. It's about what we can actually learn from the pictures and all this data. Because obviously to us, it's, ooh, pretty, or Pluto has a heart. But it's more of, you know, what we're learning from these little pictures, like how young the surface of Pluto is and things like that. Yeah, sorry, to give you a, a, an idea, when that first famous picture, now famous picture, came down, and that was the only thing we had, we were kind of looking at that heart shape, and we were kind of wondering... Is that a cliff face we're looking at? What what exactly is that? We still have. I don't think we still have answered that question yet. So we're definitely look, look, looking at a plane below, but we don't know if we're we're looking at a cliff face with that heart, you know, formation or or, or not. So uh, again, stand by. And again, the Johns Hopkins Laboratory, I should point out, is also where the spacecraft was built. So in in essence, when it delivers all this data down, it's actually literally phoning home. <laughs> very clever very clever <laughs> but yeah we'll definitely post the link to that in the show notes all right so now we mentioned this was a very special episode and indeed it is because it is six years of talking space that's right on september 9th 2009 episode one of the yet to be named space related podcast was released by episode three we were officially called talking space which i love that name it sums it up perfectly it tells you exactly what we're about we're going to be talking about space and we've been talking about space for these last six years and we figured we'd take a little bit of time to go over some of the favorite things that we've talked about on this show and even play for you some clips that have never made it to air before so we've got a lot of fun things planned for this last half of the show and we hope you'll enjoy going back down memory lane or if you're new maybe hearing some of these for the first time so where do we begin this look back at six years of talking space because there's a lot that's happened in those six years in both the space world space news and with all of us so to begin i guess we will start off with good old me who started hosting these things back in episode three and yes that rhymed go figure but yeah i still remember getting us started here with the first episode talking about the tv show defying gravity which aired seven of its episodes on abc before it was prematurely canceled i actually went and looked back <laughs> to find the rest of the episodes because it aired in its entirety in canada and it was just as bad so <laughs> Yes, there was this glowing thing, and, and I don't. Spoiler alert! You know what? Forget it. That was six years ago. Uh, it turns out there was actually something living on board the spacecraft, some alien shiny goo or whatever. But yeah, it was, it was bad. <laughs> but so the worst show ever managed to get even worse. 
Yes. <laughs> and it managed to spawn, in my opinion, one of the best shows ever, ours. But yes, it was absolutely horrible. And I can only imagine... And I can only imagine if it had actually made it all the way through to its last episode in America, what we would have said about it. But that's not my favorite memory. My favorite memory is probably one of many of the original fours here, or at least the first four people who started the show, me, Mark, Gene, and Gina, because we were all in Florida together. The first time we had all met in person, which amazingly no black hole formed like we thought it would when we all got together, and that was July 8th, 2011. And that was for the final space shuttle launch, STS-135. We ended up broadcasting that launch live on the radio uh, to almost a quarter of a million people with the help of the website Astronomy FM, of which we are still proud to be partner and aired on. And I, I still won't be able to forget that. All of us together, in person, running like a well-oiled machine, with the actual media, with like the CBSs, the CNNs, all these major networks. And then here we are in our tent with a big banner, with all of our stuff, with the big dogs airing the last space shuttle launch, doing live commentary. And I remember two very distinct things from that. One, when the clock stopped at T minus 31 seconds. I could not see what was going on. We had no NASA TV video feed, only the audio feed. Uh, I had no internet, no 3G at the time. And somehow we still managed to figure out what the problem was with the beanie cap not giving a reading that was fully retracted. I was able to just listen to it and figure out what was wrong and call it correctly live on the air. Yes, I'm patting myself on the back for that one. Because some people left me to go watch the launch. <clears throat> Gene, Mark. Um. <laughs> uh, but the other big memory I have from that is we had an astronaut come on the live show. And we were told that we could get him on, and I had no idea who this guy was. I knew nothing about him. Uh, I asked Gina to run out. It was Gene or Gina. I don't remember who. It may have been Gene. To run out and go find some information for me back where there was Wi-Fi and 3G. Well, yeah. That was you, Gene, right? Yeah, it was me, actually, Sawyer. And what I did was the only, only working computer we had, we couldn't get any Internet access, and the only working computer we had was my droid. And I was able to go ahead and pull up a couple entries on said astronaut, who I'm not going to spoil. I'll let you reveal who that was, and uh, and give you I'll give you the data that he was about ready to embark on his mission to the International Space Station and be the first commander of said facility from his native country. And Sawyer, I'll let you take it from that point. Yeah, Neil's to say. As he's coming to our tent, you come running down the hill, hand scribbled on a piece of paper his missions, and on the bottom it says, we'll command International Space Station in a few years. And then Canadian astronaut Chris Hadfield sat down right next to me, and this is the interview with Chris Hadfield that aired live on Astronomy FM from Talking Space's live broadcast. Right now we have a very special guest who is... Uh a veteran of two shuttle flights and will be going up to the International Space Station very shortly. Uh, so joining us now is Commander Chris Hadfield. So uh, thank you so much for coming and talking with us today. Uh, it's my pleasure. I'm glad to be here. What a great day to be at the Kennedy Space Center. It really is. It was a beautiful launch. And uh, you've flown twice on uh, the shuttle. and uh, Including Atlantis. In yeah. Yep. So how was it to see her go on the final flight? Uh, it was near miraculous today uh everything was against us um we had uh huge programmatic troubles convincing ourselves that we could even launch this last shuttle without a rescue ship 
We uh, had to get smart enough and brave enough after Columbia to launch a game. We had to fight terrible weather. Uh, we had all sorts of political obstacles to overcome. Um, and just a few seconds before launch, we had a, a tactical problem. And yet we worked through every one of those and launched and sent Atlantis to space. And to me, that encapsulates the whole space program. We take something that is right on the edge of impossible and make it happen. It's, it's, uh, it's near miraculous. It truly is. And um, on one of your missions on uh, STS-100, you actually brought up a very important piece to the International Space Station, bringing up Canadarm2. So how is it now seeing Canadarm2 in work and all the amazing work that it's doing after bringing it up there? The real measure of a good tool is if it can uh, surpass its original design, if it can do things for you that you just never really thought it could. The, uh, the Canadarm that is on the shuttle that flew now 90 times has done that in spades over and over and over again. And then Canadarm 2 that, that came up on my second shuttle flight that I went outside on spacewalks to bolt together has done the same thing. It, uh, it has built the International Space Station piece by piece, incrementally, like a huge uh, mechano set or a big Lego thing. And, um, and we are now operating the Canadarm from the ground a lot of the time. We found a way to safely operate a huge, complex, seven-jointed uh, robot arm from the ground and do it safely. Uh, we've moved it around for spacewalks. We've, we can grab the whole space shuttle with that arm and move something that's 100,000 kilograms. It's, it's uh, been a great um, example of the type of thing that, uh, that smart, dedicated people can build and then another group of really operation-minded people can use to do things that are right on the edge of, uh, of impossible. Can you tell us a little bit about your upcoming mission on the ISS next year? Uh, I've been training for about uh, three years already, and there's another 17 months away. Um, we will uh, climb into the Soyuz rocket ship in Baikonur, Kazakhstan, uh, out on the steps of Kazakhstan. And uh, I'll be sitting in the left seat, which means I'm sort of like the pilot of the Soyuz. And uh, it'll take about the same length of time as the shuttle has, uh, about 10 minutes to get to orbit or a little less, and then about two days to get to the space station. And then we'll be on the space station for six months, uh, halfway around the sun, you know, from one side of the solar system to the other, and uh, running all those huge laboratories, uh, keeping the health of the station, space station up, using the Canadarm to grab the uh, resupply ships as they come up. And also, for the last three months there, I'll be the commander of the space station. So uh, the responsibility, however weightless it will be, will fall on my shoulders while I'm up there. Uh, the lives of the people and the, uh, the world's space station uh, will be under my command. So, so there's a lot of preparation, a huge amount of uh, technical uh, challenge to it but also a, a great personal satisfaction to be in a position to do this at this stage of my astronaut career and at this stage of my life. Are you looking forward to being up on the station and actually getting to work hand-in-hand uh, hand or Canadarm and Canadarm with uh, the device that you actually brought up on one of your previous missions? Uh, yeah, I've, I've worked uh, with the two arms. When I was on my last flight, it was, it was pretty interesting. We actually reached out and held something with Canadarm 1 and then picked it with Canadarm 2. So it was the first handoff in space. And while we were doing that, the main computers on the space station had all failed. And the station had lost complete control over its systems. And it was only the shuttle uh, using its primitive computers that kept the station pointed the right way. And we had to move the arm in the most primitive, basic fashion possible as we did the handoff. But, uh, but we accomplished it. We worked through that problem as well. 
So uh, using Canadarm2 on my next flight to to uh, grab satellites out of the out of space, out of the sky, to uh, hand things off to the other Canadarm, to the Dexter uh, two-handed arm that's up there. Yeah, it's. Uh, I'm working an international program, but of course I take great pride in the Canadian components of it, being being one of the Canadian components myself. We said he would get him back on the air. We said we would get him back, and Neil's to say he got a little popular. So we didn't have the chance to have him back on, but I'm going to hold him to that. We are going to get him back on the air if we can. <laughs> but that's my favorite memory of many uh, from six years of Talking Space. How about we pass along to somebody else now who wants to share their favorite memories from Talking Space? Cassie, I, I remember we called you the fifth Beatle for the longest time, so how about we hand it off to you, our fifth Beatle? Oh, thanks. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny how long I held that position. Um, well, five years, really. And uh, it all started, actually, this is episode 709. It all started episode 109. And, you know, some subjects change over time and some are eternal. And so I dug up a clip from that first appearance, which was my first appearance on anything of any kind <laughs> or blog or anything. Um, when I was putting out my song Big Sale for NASA and or it had just come out and I was promoting it and I thought I'd be on this show exactly one time <laughs> and that we'd talk about Big Sale and I'd never have a reason to be on again. Sorry. So, <laughs> so I thought it was kind of neat because this clip features a program that is long gone but also is talking about something we still talk about constantly to this day which is outreach and how to spread the word, and it's what we're always trying to do. What was really neat about this clip is looking back at it, it led to some comments that gave some clues to how Talking Space would be today. Has the song had any impact on, you know, non-science folks? Have somebody, you know, walked up to you and said, hey, you know, because of this, I, I watched a shuttle launch, or I'm paying a little bit more attention to, to flights or anything like that? Absolutely. In fact, I had three people come up to me and say they watched Aries 1X because I told them about it. They got up early in the morning, earlier than they had to, and they, they, I gave them all websites. Uh, I'd seen the, they'd seen me play the song the night before. And so I gave them all websites where they could watch the launch. And they actually did. I was very surprised because none of them were people who... They, none of them had seen a launch since the 80s, not one, and they watched Aries. <laughs> wow, you're kidding. No, and somebody actually asked me about how STS-129 was going last week, <laughs> or two weeks ago. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I have a feeling most people yeah. also don't realize how many different things come from space technology, like you continually mention, of things that come out of it also. And do you think maybe people will actually stop and think, because when you talk about how it affects us on Earth, do you think maybe people will think what really does come from NASA and, you know, possibly look up and realize all the silly little things like cordless power tools that come from the space program? That's what I'm hoping. And I put on my website, actually, under the big sale for NASA section, I put links to um, NASA.gov, NASA spinoffs, Wayne Hale's blog, um, and a few other sources to find out this information to try and make it easy for people who like the song to find it and find out more. You know, I hope the song is only the beginning. I hope it's a spark to make them want to learn more. We, you know, the other day we were talking about uh, new outrage possibilities. I mean, you've invented one that 
could be wildly successful. And um, you know, I really hope that that folks go ahead, download the song, listen to it, and take it to heart because it uh, you say a lot of good stuff in there. And um, really, I hope hope this inspires people to want to go ahead and learn further. Well, thank you. That's a huge compliment because you know you write a song or you write anything and you hope it reaches people and touches people, and then but you never know until it's out there. And in a week or so that the song's been out, I cannot believe the reception it's gotten from, you know, people who are fans of space and people who know nothing alike. It's it's so gratifying. Yeah, it's a See, catchy tune, actually, and there are some people that when they listen to music, they think, you know, oh, it's great, and eventually they'll, they like a song that much, they'll learn the lyrics to it and sing it, and if people really enjoy the tune, like I do for this one, you think you, you actually start to learn the lyrics, it's amazing what you can get out of them, so... Uh, it, thank you for writing it so well and playing it so well. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> and you're welcome. And again, you're not preaching to the choir here. You know, uh, that's what I really, really like. This, you're, you're getting a whole new audience with this. You're getting people that wouldn't care one fig about, about NASA or about technology or about how, how the space program is helping them. And yet, you know, you've thrown this out there and you're attracting a whole new audience and a whole hopefully a whole new bunch of folks that are going to ask questions and say you know maybe i ought to look into this so really congratulations and the, the, a beautiful way of doing it well thank you and i you know i really hope it works i mean it, i'm a big fan of grassroots activism it's all about reaching one person at a time and educating them and then hopefully they'll go and they'll tell everyone they know and each person they tell you know, and, and it'll increase exponentially. So just being able to hit the people who have actually contacted me, I know the information's making it a lot further. So what really made me laugh about this clip, though, <laughs> was that, Sawyer, when you mentioned how much we like talking about NASA spinoffs, you didn't use that term in that particular episode, but everything that's come down to us from space, I just thought it was so funny that all these years later, I now have, on normal episodes, a segment about NASA spinoffs. Yeah, me and my big mouth there, but, <laughs> but yeah, no, it's it's great. You've always talked about it in your songs and apparently on your, what you thought was your one and only appearance on Talking Space, and now it's the regular <laughs> segment, so um, go figure. Well, I just want to say I'm so glad. I, it turns out I went back and counted. I was on nine episodes before I joined the crew last fall. And I'm so grateful you guys gave me the chance to do this. And I'm so happy to be part of the team full time. But I was also happy to help you out before then. It was always just too much fun, which is why I'm here now. Well, you know, of course, we're happy to have you on as well. So thank you for uh, sticking around as the fifth Beatle, even though, you know, <laughs> there's not really five of us or, you know, it, the numbers have changed. But thank you for still being the fifth Beatle. No problem. <laughs> That's it. Yep. John, Paul, George, Ringo, and Cassie. <laughs> well, it's kind of appropriate, too, that I was the fifth Beatle since George Martin was the fifth Beatle, and I am an audio engineer, and now I'm doing the editing even, so it's become even more appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that was my mind blowing. <laughs> anyway, uh, thank you, Cassie, for sharing that. Uh, and now, Kat, you have not been with us very long. You know, Cassie was back on in season one. Your first appearance on the show was your first appearance as pretty much a, a regular. 
I'm, yeah, I'm. I was basically the fifth Beatles plus one. <laughs> 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 but as anyone who knows me, I'm not very content to be a plus one. So I guess um, you guys had me on to talk about some research that I did on NASA's use of social media. And I just kind of never left. <laughs> and I am thrilled to be a part of the show. It's definitely something that I'm proud of. And I love getting together with you guys all the time and chatting about space. And I think based on what I think the show does best, and I think the show is really valuable because Talking Space contextualizes the news and really gives a more comprehensive view you have if you're just reading a few articles or you don't have a chance to bounce the ideas off of other people. So because of that, I think one of my favorite memories of the times that I've been a part of the show was when we were all down this past December in Florida for the launch of EFT-1, uh, Exploration Flight Test 1, Orion's first flight test. And it was great because I got to meet everyone in person that I hadn't met before got to do a lot of things for the show and I think the best part of that besides seeing a Delta Heavy launch for the first time which as anyone who loves the rockets is very exciting because it's someone told me it's going to look like a skyscraper leaving the ground and it really did so but I had a chance to sit down with astronaut Ricky Arnold and we had a really great conversation kind of funny Sawyer because this is someone I had no idea who he was. I was actually supposed to sit down with somebody else who uh, schedule changed and couldn't make it for some reason. So this was the last minute. He's like, well, I'm here. How about you interview me? So I wasn't even prepared, knew nothing about him. But we started talking about just the mission and why it was important. As you'll hear in this clip, he talks about the idea of these missions as being generational projects. And for me, he just hit the spot. With um, the launch today, we're really, as a space program, taking the next step forward into the next giant leap in our journey to Mars. What do you want to say to the public that may see this spinning as extraneous or not so much important? Well, it sounds like a lot of money, but in the the grand scheme, it it really isn't. And um, to me, the the one thing that you, you want people to know is going to Mars, building a space station, these are all generational projects, right? Uh, it's, it's, this flight's just one step in a, in a long series of steps that, that have to happen before we land on Mars, and it's going to be, it ain't going to be me walking on Mars, it's not going to be Doug Wheelock, it's going to be some kid sitting out of a classroom somewhere. And so we need to s- sustain the commitment to these, these projects that we get started um, to, to, to achieve the goals we want to achieve. I really like that term you use. This is generational projects. Uh, yeah, it's these things don't happen overnight with these really getting the bars is hard. Those words just, they're just so important to me. He talks about sustaining the commitment. And that's something that all of us on the show have talked about, both for the agencies, for space, for NASA, for anyone involved, ESA, anybody. You know, we talk about there has to be a commitment. And then just personally, we've all committed to this show. You know, Gene, Sawyer, Mark, and even Cassie in some ways have been there since the beginning. And you'll hear a little bit later, we're going to talk about how we're going to continue our commitment 
to just bring you the best possible version of talking space. So that's why that memory of, of EFT one is just, it's the best for me and getting together with all of you and getting to discuss these is also the best. So thanks for letting me uh, make my plus one a little bit more permanent. Of course, we're happy to have you on. Now it's back to the rest of us old guys, the ones who have been here since day one, back in September of 2009. Mark, what about you, sir? Well, if I could give you one story about my greatest experience on behalf of Talking Space, I would. But the value of so much of my time around Kennedy Space Center and the NASA family is way beyond measure. But I will take one moment that I'm glad I didn't miss and share it with you. If you value experiences that other folks have and you want to learn ideas that will benefit you, then I'm sure you'll like the recording that I'm going to play. In this recording, please excuse the background noises like people talking, a baby crying, etc. This is recorded out in the open air on a nice fall day almost three years ago. I was at Kennedy Space Center on November 2nd, 2012 for the final move of OV-104 Space Shuttle Atlantis from the Vehicle Assembly Building to the still under construction KSC Visitor Complex Atlantis exhibit. The recording you'll hear is from Exploration Park, just a few hundred feet from where Atlantis was set midway on its journey. And there were hundreds of people around that had their first up-close encounter with Atlantis. The speakers you're going to hear is NASA Administrator Charlie Bolden and Kennedy Space Center Director Bob Cabana. You're going to hear them talking about important things like hope, dreams, and not being afraid of failure. At the end, you'll hear a tip from Bob Cabana that he used to give to rookie astronauts when he was chief astronaut at Johnson Space Center. Now, here's the rules for the next three minutes and 12 seconds. Are you ready? Don't take notes. Just listen, enjoy, and in a few years, tell me. You don't have to wait a few years, but tell me if Bob Cabana gives good advice that even us non-astronauts can benefit from. And I, one day, uh, actually at a place called Patuxent River, Maryland, I met an incredible human being, a guy by the name of the late, I call him the late Greek, but Dr. Ron McNair, who, uh, who was on the Challenger crew. And Ron and I had grown up in, in, in South Carolina, in the segregated South, did not know each other. Ron was like Bob. Ron always dreamed of going to space, and he would not accept no for an answer. And uh, he was in the first group of astronauts selected, like Bob said. He, he was an African-American male PhD, not a pilot, not a test pilot, not any of that. And Ron came to Pax River and talked to me, and we talked for a weekend, and when he was getting ready to leave, he said, hey, are you going to apply for the space program? I said, not on your life. And he said, why not? I said, they never picked me. And I said it for exactly the reason that Bob said. I had never seen, uh, you know, an astronaut of color. Uh, they had always been about 5'10 or so, white Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, maybe. And, uh, but all test pilots, and so I just didn't think there was an opportunity to do that. And Ron looked at me, he said, you know, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard. He said, how do you know? What's your name? Tyler, Tyler, this is what he told me. He said, how do you know that you won't be picked if you don't try? That's, that's what he told me. And so what I'll tell you, don't let anybody tell you you cannot do something. None of you, none of the kids here, you got to dream big dreams. I mean, dream really big dreams. Be like Bob was when he was a kid. 
and then just go satisfy your appetite to fulfill those dreams. I, and and I don't mean, give up. Right. You know, I, I never got in. I didn't get to be a pilot, a test pilot, or an astronaut on the first try. If anybody says, how do you get to be an astronaut, Bob, I tell them persistence. Set a goal and don't give up. you got to keep trying. Yeah. yeah, you know, another thing I'll tell you is... Um, we're going to have something bad happen in the future. You know, it always does. How, how many of you actually worked on shuttle around here and, and were here for Challenger or for Columbia? Uh, those were dark days. I mean, really, really dark days. But as I tell everybody all the time, we do really exciting stuff, but it's dangerous. And, and it is the kind of stuff that, that allows a great nation to be great. And the kinds of stuff that SpaceX is doing now, that Orbital is doing, that Boeing's doing, that Sierra Nevada's doing, uh, it's hard. You know, we, we've gotten it, as I tell people all the time, the folk down here at Kennedy make it look easy. It is not easy to, to leave the planet. It's really hard to do that. And so we're going to have some dark days. But when we do, the, what I plead with you all is don't, don't devote, don't, you know, leave us. Uh, we'll recover because we're incredibly resilient, but um, we cannot be afraid of failure. Cannot be afraid of failure. We do big things. That's what that's what we do. All right, I got another question for you. Uh oh. When I was uh, chief of the astronaut office, I always used to tell first-time flyers, time on orbit, it's really expensive, it's really busy, but at some point in a mission, stick your nose up to the window and make a memory. Don't take a picture of it, because what you see is so much better than any photograph you look at when you get back on the ground. So share a memory from one of your missions. And for now, that's it for me. I just have to say, Mark, real quick, sorry to, to jump in on your memory, but... I just love that about Charlie Bolden. He is so upfront about the dangers of of spaceflight. You know, what first brought me to this show was the work I did on OCO2. And someone asked him a question about what would happen, you know, what happens because it's a risky business. And his response was almost exactly the same. He's like, it's not about if we fail. It's about what happens after we fail because something bad is going to happen. So I just, I love so much that that's the clip that you chose. Thank you. That's a kind of a sentiment that fits everywhere in life when you think about it. It sure is. Yes, indeed. Thank you. <laughs> Definitely. Thank you for sharing that. I, I haven't even heard that clip before. That was great. And now last but not least, the man who originally had the concept for this show, Gene McCulka. Gene. Yeah. Thanks Sawyer. Mark, um, First, the uh, the comment you made, or the comment that Bob Cabana made, is uh, make a memory. It's very, very reminiscent of something that somebody else, a mutual friend of ours, had uh, had urged me to do uh, during our coverage of STS-135. She basically said, "Slow down, take a deep breath, absorb the moment, and and try to make a memory." and uh, literally forced us to do that. And um, so, so good advice. Uh, this little show here started out as an experiment. It uh, has its ties all the way back really to about 2003 when I came up with the idea. I was actually looking for a show like this when I was searching the space podcast. There were some great astronomy podcasts out there. Uh, there was some other wonderful stuff out there. I mean, Pamela Gay at the time was was doing uh, something called Slacker Astronomy, which was just absolutely hysterical. Um, but now that's that's morphed into into other things. 
I originally sold this concept or tried to sell it to uh, my old employer, the County College Morris Planetarium, and we would have had a lot of good professional uh, sound equipment where we might have actually sounded a little better, but they didn't seem to be interested. I tried to sell the concept to the local uh, NSS chapter, also around the 2003 timeframe. Uh, they didn't seem to be interested, and the idea kind of just sat there on the shelf uh, for a long time until I guess about 2009. It was right around the time when NASA was doing its social media push. And I, I just needed the right mix of individuals and the right talent to kind of pull this thing off. And uh, uh, I was darn lucky when the call went out after the umpteenth time that we tried to launch STS-127. And uh, we just, all of us on Twitter, just kind of like got ticked off and because the press was asking, well, couldn't we just waive some of these launch rules? And our idea was, hey, look, the launch rules are there for a reason. They're there to make sure the bird gets off the ground safe. And uh, I recall that night with about four or five others, and I mentioned the concept for this show. And essentially the, the word went out, I believe it was on the, and, and guys, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe it was on the Space Creep Society website when this first thing, when, when the call went out to try to find volunteers for this thing. And I believe Sawyer, you answered, Mark, you answered, and a couple of I guess a couple of weeks later, Gina answered the answered the call, and we decided to embark on this uh, this wild and crazy trip. I could go back and look at the very very first program, and uh, sorry, you mentioned the uh, the idiocy of uh, defying gravity, and we were just pointing out all the all the technical uh, issues with the program because a whole bunch of us were doing that at the time, but also we debated the the justification of a one-way trip to Mars on that mission or on that uh, on that particular program and oddly enough there are now actually two companies that want to do that and uh, so that that's that's kind of kind of interesting we were actually uh, Cassie pointed out uh, that we actually talked about Mars one on our very first show and it, it the way they're going about it I, I think it's all wrong but that's that's neither here nor there one of the the memories that I have, it, I tried to look for one, and I couldn't pin it down, so I don't really have a clip for anybody, but I am going to go ahead and point out some moments. One was watching NASA television with you, Mark. You were there on our behalf when AMS-02 came over from Europe here to the United States, when it was brought over, I believe, on a C-147 and landed the uh, the crew that would take it up were were there on hand to ask questions of the press, and there you were. Uh, you had a seat at the table. We weren't too sure we were going to get that seat again, but again, I, I still lost a few uh, few buttons on my shirt saying, "Yep, we're there," and that's what really counted. And then later on that year, we you were there again on our behalf with STS one thirty three. And that, again, I think I lost a couple of buttons on my shirt after you, you, uh, you had asked that question. I, I think I gave the infamous one-armed fist pump, and I went, yeah, you know, we, we're, we're in the game. Because that, to me, was a critical moment for this program. We were actually at the table, as Sawyer, you pointed out earlier, with the NBCs, the ABCs, the CNNs, 
and even some of the the you know the space news is the uh, the other uh, space media out there that have been following the program for a long time. We were the upstarts. We were there, and it just filled me with some pride. And not only were were you there, Mark, on our, our behalf, but you were there on on behalf of everybody listening to my voice. And and that was a major step for this audience. We could take them now places where we didn't think we could take this audience. And we have been to places together with this audience that I never would have dreamed possible. And and where does the future go? That's what I'm really more interested about. I mean, I know we're, we're kind of excited about looking back and, and seeing all these accomplishments, but I'm, I'm more right now thinking about looking forward and looking forward to to the future and what it's going to bring and what it's going to bring this audience going forward. And I can't wait for all of you to tag along with us because uh, I, I've said this before on, on this program, fasten your seatbelts and uh, enjoy the show because uh, we're, we're about ready to to take you folks where really we were where we have never been before. So hang in there, stay with us, keep listening. And I want to thank all of you that have been listening to us for six years, because it's because of you guys that we continue to do this without you. We don't do this. So again, I appreciate all the support that we've had. I've never would have imagined the things we were able to pull off with just a wing and a prayer, but we did it, and with your support, we'll continue to do it. So again, thanks for listening from the bottom of my heart, and I can't wait to show you where else we're going to go in the not-too-distant future. So again, many thanks. Yes, indeed. Thank you to everybody who's been listening to us, whether you've been listening to us for, you know, it's your first episode, you've been listening for a season or two, or if you've been listening all the way since 2009, which if you are, first question, why? But second question, I am kidding, of course. We thank you all very, very much for sticking with us and first giving us a chance and then second, continuing to stay with us uh, after listening to us and giving us that chance. Now, like was mentioned we definitely have some changes coming up in the future for Talking Space, but don't worry. They are nothing terrible. It is not the end of the world. We will still be here. However, we may not be here as frequent as you think we will be. We have a new release schedule for episodes. Episodes will be released the first and third week of every month. So that means, unless there is a special event, we will be there the first and third week of each month. If it is a holiday... Unfortunately, we won't be on until whatever the next scheduled release week is. We will, of course, still air, unless things change, on astronomy.fm on Saturday mornings at 2 UTC, which is Friday evenings here on the eastern part of the United States. So you can always stay tuned to that. And, of course, we air throughout the day for 24 straight hours because they do go through an episode cycle over there on Astronomy FM. We do have other things coming up as well, and I'll leave it to some of our other panel members to help explain what else we have going on here at Talking Space. But that's the big one. First and third week of every month, keep an eye out for a new Talking Space. What else do we have coming up? Thanks, Sawyer. Uh, there are a lot of exciting things coming up. For me personally, on behalf of Talking Space and to present my own research, I am headed back to the International Astronautical Congress. Uh, this year, IAC 2015 is in Jerusalem, Israel. 
So I will be very happy to be there on behalf of the program and getting a lot of fun information for all of you that we will share on the air. And a significant portion of the Talking Space gang in December will be headed to Kennedy Space Center for the launch of Orb 4. So there is a lot of exciting travel coming up for us, and we are very happy to be able to continue to report on location. Yep, continuing in the likes of STS-135 and EFT-1, like we just talked about earlier, a lot of the team is going to be down for that, and Talking Space will be out at IAC, which thank you for doing that, Kat. So a lot of good travel and coverage coming up. Of course, we try and go out and cover as many of the launches as we can, so keep an eye out for those. And... Also keep an eye out on the future. Talking Space very shortly will be working on a crowdsourced funding project or crowdsourcing, crowdfunding, whatever you want to call it. We'll be working on one of those projects in the near future. So we'll obviously talk about it on the show, but keep an eye out because if you love Talking Space, we'd love to have you help us out. And of course, we have one more thing that we'd love for you guys to do. And I think, Mark, that one's on you. Yeah, following along with the uh, recording that I played and Bob Cabana, you know, we've got a request for all you listening to the show. Please help us add to the valuable collection of memories that we individually have by contributing yours. Like Bob Cabana said, stick your nose to the window and make a memory. Let us know some of what you'll never forget. Use the hashtag TS6. That's Tango Sierra and the number six. If you message us via social media, if you can send us a recording, we would love to hear from you. Exactly. And just a reminder, if you want to email us either a text message or an audio recording of yourself as well, talking about your favorite memory, you can email it to us at mailbag at talkingspaceonline.com. If you're doing it on social media, tweet it at us at Talking Space or post it on our wall at facebook.com slash Talking Space. And don't forget to use the hashtag TS6 for six years of Talking Space. And with that, that brings this episode to its conclusion. I'd like to thank everybody who joined us here tonight. Thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. Thank you, Sawyer. It was uh, a fun ride. And uh, again, I'm looking forward to uh, to the future of the program. Oh, me too. Thank you as well, Kat Robinson. It's always a pleasure to be here, and thanks for having me. Thank you as well, Cassie, a.k.a. Craftless. Well, here's looking ahead to at least six more. <laughs> Amen to that. And thank you as well for joining us, Mark Ratterman. Be back before you know it. Thanks. Exactly. We will be back before you know it because it turns out next week is the third week of the month. And you know our episodes now are going to be the first and third week of each month. So we'll see you on our next episode. But until then, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are. And again, from all of us, thank you.